If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with Steve Melching, Darren Docterman, Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 movie live. You should see the expressions. The only on way tape. to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is right. to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. <laughs> Coming right. soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. <laughs> Ash wow. Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. <laughs> if you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexpert's Briefing Room, a Trexpert's new series. Trexpert's Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts Briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. Hello and welcome to the Cartoon Bar Room. I'm your host, Stephen Melching. Very excited about uh, this week's show. And uh, here is our co-host, Ashley Edward Miller. Dude, crazy week. Um, very crazy week. Uh, and uh, I don't even need to go into, into why. Uh, I, but uh, my head is spinning. I feel like a, a kite in a hurricane. Um, but uh, what, I am, what I'm more excited about than anything uh, is our guest. Uh, she uh, is Lauren Montgomery, who was the co-showrunner, executive producer of Voltron, Legendary Defender, uh, which, uh, which was animated by a, a little place you and I know uh, called Studio Amir. Um, she got her start, I believe, on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the 2002 version, because good Lord, um, if you were working on the one that I saw as a kid, you were a serious prodigy. Uh, you've worked on Ben 10, Legion of Superheroes. Um, I mean, did I, did I mention uh, and Avatar a, and Korra? <laughs> and, a, and a slew of DC animated uh, direct-to-video movies. Yeah, just yeah. just a, a crazy, crazy IMDb. Like, it is it is far longer and cooler than, than mine. Um, but, uh, yeah, we are incredibly excited to have you on the show. Our, our, I think our first question... For you before we get really started in all this is, is kind of the most important. Um, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, I am drinking <laughs> Perrier, which is um, 
about as hardcore as I get. <laughs> Normally, my my drink of choice is Dr. Pepper. That's that's my obsession. Hey, all right. Um, I love Dr. Pepper. Uh, since we're at about 8.30 now and I have an early meeting in the morning, <laughs> maybe don't drink Dr. Pepper right now. So we're, we're just going with the Perrier. It'll keep my mouth, you know, nice and uh, hydrated so that we can continue to speak longer than I normally speak. Awesome. How about you, Ash? What are you drinking? Uh, tonight, uh, I am indulging in the Hakushu 12. Uh, we had this conversation with, with Troy Baker, I think, about like, or, or was it about the difference between a Japanese whiskey and a Scotch whiskey? And is Japanese whiskey really a Scotch or not? All I know is it tastes like Scotch. <laughs> and I think that's the important thing. Uh, but I'm pretty excited about it. What do you got? Is it is it your old standby? Yeah, it's my my second old standby, the good old uh, screwdriver, the Kettle One screwdriver. Nice. Okay, so, cool. Cheers. You were ready. So, so cheers. Well, hi, I'm. Welcome to the bar room. I... I cannot believe that our paths haven't crossed, Lauren. We've worked on probably five or six of the same shows, and uh, we have a we probably have a, at least a dozen people in common. Uh, and uh, it, from your very first show, I wrote like I don't know eight episodes of that He-Man show, including I think a couple that you boarded on. Probably, yeah. I um I was such a new, young, like excited animation person. <laughs> like. I was just happy to be there. So th there's a very good chance that you wrote any number of those episodes and I just had no idea because I was like, I, I get to draw things for a living. This is the greatest job ever. <laughs> did you work out, did you ever go down to the Mattel offices down there? No, we never got to. Like, I don't know. I I kind of wish that we had, I, I don't know if I came on like a little too late, if maybe they treated everyone to that earlier or maybe like- <laughs> Well, I maybe, would-, I would I wouldn't say it's a treat, but what was, what was funny about Mattel is like my father was in the Air Force, and for a time, one of the places he was stationed was NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. And we did a tour once, a family tour during the Cold War, and we went through, you know, the metal detectors, and there's soldiers there with rifles. And we get on a little bus and they drive us like a mile into this mountain. And we go through the giant blast door and into the complex for the tour. That not too much different from visiting Mattel. Like the security at that place is insane. You're you're x-rayed, you're you signing things, you can't take anything out that you didn't come in with. It's like they're they're really worried about uh corporate Skeletor getting out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what they're not telling you, right? It's like you think that it's to you know, like, you know, protect all of like their wares, but but actually they're containing Skeletor. <laughs> uh. It's a little known. Fact I mean, that's amazing. That. I can understand. Like, I we you know in animation, we're always trying to like make sure leaks don't happen. So I'm sure with toys, it's it's the same thing. But like, wow, <laughs> it's not something I would have ever expected as a kid. You just imagine like, oh, a toy company. It's it's just magic and fun everywhere. And then you go there, and it's like, nope, metal yeah. detectors. <laughs> it's an office by the airport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a toy nerd. I don't know if you if you noticed, but like <laughs> There's a couple toys back there in in my um in my home. Uh, so any like any trip to any toy company sounds incredible yeah. to me. So when you decide on what toys you're going to acquire, like like what's your metric? Like what's your thing? You're like I'm getting to this. Like um, you know. it's usually 
some sort of like emotional attachment to the character or the property. Um, whether it's nostalgic or whether it's something that, you know, I just really loved. Um, so obviously I have a, I have a great deal of like my Shira toys, the kind of Mattel classics that they've released in, in more recent years. Um, a lot of, a lot, a lot of Ultron stuff. I went through a, a phase where I was very into the monster high dolls that Mattel made. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a lot of those. Um, but the majority of what I have is like Japanese um, toys, just figmas and fig arts and just model kits. And I've got like a link here, but he's like a super expensive, you know, friggin' 12 inch. Paid like close to $400 for that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I so love the Japanese toys. I went on a little binge a few years ago and repurchased a lot of the little die cast metal uh, Japanese mm -hmm. toys that were the Shogun Warriors and that kind of stuff that were really popular in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Got a little yeah, shelf of those. I've got like my Yamato and all that other oh. stuff. Now, you said you've got model kits. Now, do you actually like sit and build the models? I, I do. I will That's build awesome. model kits. I'm not as like intense as like my my husband builds them and he'll also like paint and airbrush and like he does all the stuff. I'm too lazy to paint anything. So <laughs> I need it to come like with all the colors it needs to be. And like I enjoy kind of like the puzzle aspect of putting it together. Um, but that's kind of where it stops. Once there's like, and then there's more steps. I'm like, and I, it's time for us to break up, model kid. I don't know. It starts to feel like work because it's work. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and I just, I'm not. I'm, I'm an artist, so I, I should have a steady hand, but I don't, I'm bad at painting. So it's like, just don't, don't let me paint it. It's going to come out looking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's the pride of your collection, right? Like if, you know, it was like, uh, was it two years ago that we had like the big fire warning for the valley and everybody was like, my God, we might have to evacuate. <laughs> like if that happened again and you had to choose just one toy to rescue, oh, geez. what toy would it be? That is that is insanely difficult because um, <laughs> my toy collection is much larger than what you see here. <laughs> like, I can believe it. I do have these like oversized Sailor Moon like vinyl figures that are like they're like this tall, and there's a whole like set of five of them that I would probably make sure I grab those. <laughs> that set. <laughs> I have to get the whole set. They, no one can be left behind. Um, no yeah. silver moon left behind. They, they're they going like, I paid a decent chunk of money for them on eBay because like by the time I came around to them, you know, they, they'd already been out for like 10 years. <laughs> so, but I love them very much just for like how ridiculously large they are. Uh, you you said that you a, a lot of what governs your collecting is emotional attachments to mm -hmm. the properties. What were some of the shows that you loved growing up that you couldn't wait to get home from school and watch, or you get up early Saturday morning? Or you know, uh, yeah, like, I had some weird ones, and believe it or not, some ones that like don't really have toys to accompany them. <laughs> but like, I remember, I very much enjoyed Thundercats. Um, mm -hmm. Robotech is probably like close to the top, um, if not like the top of things that I watched my, when I was younger, Sailor Moon. Like it's these things, I wasn't super young for these. I was like in my late teens, probably mid to late teens by the time I was watching these things. So 
like in my childhood, I'm trying, my childhood was like Thundercats and Voltron. Like those were kind of the younger ones. Uh, Batman, the animated series was really big for me. Gargoyles um, on the Disney channel was really big. Like the whole Disney afternoon I loved. DuckTales, Darkwing, Tailspin, all of them. Um, but the ones like that really kind of changed my world were Robotech and Sailor Moon because they had a much more serialized story. And like I was very much used to the American sort of animation approach, which is like, you know, you have your ultimate reset where like at, a, at the end of every episode, everything's resolved. The beginning of every episode is just a new adventure. You don't need to know what happened before. You don't need to know what's going to happen later um, because there's no serialization. Like consequences don't last. Um, and so when I watched Robotech, like that story just kept going. <laughs> and it kept going. And you had to know what happened before. And like, relationships and stories just progressed over a longer period of time and like the only way I could wrap my head around it at the time was like oh my god it's it's like a soap opera but in animation it's an animated soap opera like that's all I could process because I didn't I didn't really like I wasn't familiar with the idea of serialized content <laughs> like, how many episodes were there like, a buttload so, I think is the technical like, term 50 or 60 or 70 how many episodes do you remember Oh, God, I have no clue. I just know, like, with... It was a lot, though. They adapted, like, three different series. It was like, okay, well, you've got the Matt Cross version. Then you've got the, what, the the Southern Southern Cross version. And then you've got the Mospita version, which is just like... And they're all some sort of form of Robotech. And they try to, like, jam them together and make one story out of them. They don't really make a whole lot of sense together. But, hey, I was on board. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, like, like, kind of like the Voltrons, right? Like yeah. the um, the the original Voltron series, which was like like two or three different shows that were kind of bolted yeah. together. Yeah, it was like was it? I want to say Die Ruger. I don't know. If yeah, I, there was like, and that was the that was the Beast Voltron, and then there was the Vehicle Voltron, right? Was yeah, which I I don't know if that was all Die Ruger or if that was something completely different. I know like there's Beast King Voltron, um. Crap, I don't know. I'm getting them all confused. <laughs> but there were like a couple kind of... shows. Uh, Go Lion. Yeah, Go Lion. Yeah. <laughs> Go Lion um, was all of the stuff like with the pilots and the robot. And then they would have those cutaways to the Galaxy Garrison, which was just another anime altogether. And then. Which the... is so weird. And it's like you don't even think about that when, you know, they were bringing these animated shows over from Japan. I was like, screw it. Let's just sew them together into a Frankenstein. But that's how we remember it. Yeah, and I honestly had, like, the funny thing was I had no idea that I was watching anime at the time. Like, you know, it was just, it was a cartoon. Like, I wasn't savvy enough to realize, like, this style means, like, it's not made in America. <laughs> like, this style means it's, like, a Japanese anime and it's brought over here. Like, I was just like, hey, it's a cartoon. It's for me. I'm a kid. I love it. Um, and so, like, me and a lot of other people like in our generation were like we were kind of absorbing anime from a very young age even though we weren't really knowing it um but yeah it's i love the story i'll go back i i watch it again i have no idea what it what it is <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Trump, i just like i just remember really like loving the fact that a there were these colorful lions b they made a robot and c there was a lady and she was 
in a lion and she had a little pink outfit and she was cool. And, and that was all I really needed to know. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Uh, it seems like a lot of the people we've talked to on the show, including Ashley and me, were really heavily influenced by anime growing up. Whether in Ash and I, we watched a lot of Star Blazers, which was a serialized space adventure, and um, you know, uh, you know, Speed Racer, and and uh, uh, there were a number of these anime shows that made it to America that mm -hmm. that that so many people working in animation were fans of. I I wonder why that is. If it's just how different they were, how creative they were compared to a lot of the American stuff, which was seen more geared towards selling toys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. there's something about anime that is really unique in that, like, A, it's just, it has a different look to it, which is, like, the obvious face value. But there's also, like, because it's made, like, on such a almost low budget, and they're so, like, conscious of how many drawings need to go into a scene and, like, how many shots can you have, the limitations that they had almost kind of forced them to make creative decisions to get around it. And so there was just a different approach to a lot of the shot choices. And so they ended up kind of trying to choose shots that were more interesting to look at, and but with less motion in them. And I think the American approach to animation has always been like, make it move and it's like and you know all of the squash and stretch and it was very like kind of motion geared where like you know make it move make it funny so kids will watch it whereas anime was always like make it still make it interesting and like and give it an intriguing story um and it was just a different sensibility and i think something about that just kind of <laughs> makes you appreciate it because like if you if you're a fan of animation you you want to see like all different types of it you don't want to just be like no this is my type of animation and that's all i care about don't show me the other stuff if you love animation you love anything that has kind of a unique take and you just kind of want to absorb it and appreciate it and that's kind of the reason i think one of the reasons i was so intrigued by it was because it felt so different and a lot of their stories like they dive like really head into a lot of like sci-fi type mm -hmm. stuff which i think in america we have like a really like specific version of sci-fi <laughs> but a lot of other stuff is just like it's really adventure -y geared and it's like i think at a certain point a lot of the cartoons just went like full comedy and a lot of like the kind of um i don't know more action-y aspects we're just like eh, that you go in the toy selling category and then like but for the most part we're just going to go like all in on the comedy and japan was just always like we're just gonna make trippy stories and you're not gonna know what you're looking at but you're gonna love it and i think maybe it also had something to do with uh, the japanese with manga in japan being a you know the, their comic book tradition uh and so many older people reading that stuff and watching these shows so the they were writing up to maybe an older audience so the storytelling was more sophisticated and longer form and uh and mm -hmm. also that sort of eastern storytelling tradition is a little bit different than our western style so it's yeah. as you're watching it here in america it's like wow this isn't I don't know how to predict what's going to happen because it's just different. And also, it's going from right to left, and that's strange. <laughs> that's, what's happening? Uh, 
story's just backwards. Right, they just started with the end scene and then why are we watching it this way? Um, so from an art, from an artist perspective, right, sitting down and, and making something like Avatar or Korra um, or Voltron, right, which clearly have this these very strong anime influence um, for you as an as an artist, right, or as a as a creator, like like what was the line for you between these shows have an anime influence? and they're purely anime. Like, like what were like the, the anime elements that you felt were definitely present in all of those shows and kind of, and, but where did you, you know, where did you draw a line and kind of make your shows their, their own thing? Yeah, well, I think we generally like, I generally say like, if it's not made in Japan, it's technically not anime. Like right. we can never go out and just right. say like, Even it's, it's anime, we're not Japanese, we're not in Japan. We're like, we're trying to emulate like that style because we respect it and we love it. Um, and so, you know, we always say, well, it's anime influenced because it is like they, it originated in Japan, it influenced us and now, and we're using that influence to kind of create this show, but also, like I would say very much that for Avatar and Korra because that was an original story made in America, but with a definite Japanese anime influence. Um, and I would say the majority of the influence obviously comes through in the design style, um, but also in the serialized storytelling and in the want to have a story that is a little more mature or like a little more four quadrant where it's not like di directly geared towards kids to sell toys. It's, it's for children. But when you've got like parents and grandparents watching it with those kids, they don't want to shoot themselves in the head. They actually enjoy it because there's a story there to follow. Um, and so when it came to Voltron, Voltron, we had even more of a desire to kind of have that like anime influence, which was because it's, based on an anime that was, was then like ported to America. And now we're making America and like, you know, sending it back to Japan, like, hey, do you want to watch this too? Um, which was kind of like a weird full circle moment for us where we made this anime inspired show based on a literal anime. And then it went on Netflix and people watched it in Japan. <laughs> but, uh, but being that it's based on like an actual 70s, and that we watched in the 80s anime, um, having that style really harken back to that original style that kind of, uh, I don't know, the more fun, like almost like rounder edged kind of anime style that existed more in the 80s. Like mm -hmm. if you look at like kind of the evolution of anime, you'll see like the styles that happened more in like 70s to 80s and then like where they went in the 90s and then now in the 2000s. And like when you look at anime, at least when I look at it nowadays, a lot of it tends to blend together. Like the shows don't always differentiate from each other a lot, but for some reason, like the decades do. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like I can tell like the different decades. Um, and we wanted to make our show that felt modern, but still kind of harkened back to that like 70s, 80s style. Um, some of that was in the drawings, but I think a lot of it was just in like the the approach to the characters and like their different shapes and their different personalities. Cause like one of the big kind of anime tropes was like, you have 
you have your leader guy, your handsome leader, you have your second handsome guy, and then you've got your token woman, and then you've got like the kind of big, big fat guy, and you've got the kid. And that's essentially what like our team was. It was like Keith, Lance, Allura, Hunk, and Paige. Uh, and it was important just to like keep those shapes in the show. Mm-hmm. Even though like, I think if the toy company had had their way, we would have had like five, five handsome guys, buff, buff guys, <laughs> five burly buff guys. handsome. <laughs> that we would have sold a bunch of toys out of, but we really wanted to keep those shapes. And then, and DreamWorks was behind us, like wanting to keep those different shapes. And so, uh, we well, got to do it. We didn't really, get really like Buffy Central. I mean, it. I, I feel like you know, you kind of look at, and I'm I'm only making the comparison because there's the the shows share you know so many things in terms of like the sort of the personnel behind realizing them artistically. Um, that Voltron definitely seems to exist in its own visual space relative to Korra um, mm-hmm. or to Avatar. Uh, mm-hmm. That, you know, it, it, you kind of brought up the whole, the sort of the, the rounder feeling of yeah. some of that 70s and 80s anime. And, and definitely Voltron has it. I mean, certainly there are like insanely cool fights and just and great character design and all of that stuff in Voltron is awesome. Um, but if you put it side by side with Korra, y- you never confuse those two shows except to say that like they're both beautiful mm-hmm. in their own way. So it sounds like that was that was very much a conscious choice to kind of move away from that style. It was well, a lot of it was just like conservation of of effort, <laughs> like a pencil mileage. Um, so Korra is a beautiful show, but a lot of what makes it beautiful is like the hard work of the animators. And if you look at Korra, there's a lot of like loose clothing, like capes. Tenzin's got like a skirt and a cape. Um, there's a lot of effects animation, flowing hair, and and just hand-to-hand combat. So it's like a ton of pencil mileage when it comes to character animation and effects animation and the follow-through of clothing and hair and everything that like once the character stops it keeps going and then it swoops back and like all of that stuff adds up to a ton of work and I know the studios like Studio Mir really struggled to keep up with that and it was very difficult for them and so as we went into Voltron like one of the things, like we knew we weren't going to have as big of a budget as Cora did and we knew we were going to be going longer in our like episode order. And so we had to find ways to make it sustainable. So that was like our big goal was like, how do we make this show sustainable so we don't burn out um, our studio? And one big way we did that was to make conscious design choices, like for the clothing, like do we like, if you look at Allura, like most of the time she's in like, like a skin tight like spandex suit there is no follow-through like a lot of the characters even the ones that have have, like a little bit of give like hunk he has a vest but it doesn't like move around a ton like the most kind of follow-through thing he has is like his little headband which you know you can kind of bring that to rest in like a couple a couple drawings and then when they're in their like pilot outfits we made sure like the pilot outfits like everything is contained all hairs and helmets. There is no flowing pieces. There is nothing that would require any sort of like follow through or overlap animation. Um, just again, to like keep it as sustainable as possible. Um, and then also we didn't have a ton of like 
hand-drawn effects animation. People weren't bending fire and water all the time, so that helps. Um, but on the other hand, we had more CG, like in CG that we had to integrate with these lions and Voltron. Um, so, but what that ended up doing was it ended up splitting the work between Mir's two kind of divisions, the CD, CG division and the 2D division. So it meant like they both had an ample amount of work, but nobody was overworked. And so like one thing is like, at, towards the end of the order, like we were kind of getting to the end of Voltron, and I think we went and we saw Studio Mirror and Studio Rev and they're like, oh, can we do more Voltron? Like, we love Voltron because like, <laughs> it was so easy. Like, fight scenes were just like guys in the line just like, push a lever. And that was it. Like, that was like a fight scene for them. Like, yeah, push a lever. I was like, yeah, it's the easiest thing to animate. And meanwhile, we're storyboarding everything by hand and like, and like, a million ships everywhere and we're dying <laughs> and we're like no we're never doing more Voltron it's over it has to end uh, but like they they loved it because it was a considerably easier thing for them to achieve than like Korra is it's beautiful but it's hard work that makes it that beautiful and now I'm feeling guiltier and guiltier <laughs> yeah you'll never put another cape on another right. character oh, maybe Maybe the character with the flowing ponytail should wear her helmet when she kicks the ever-loving hell out of everybody. And <laughs> I don't know. No. Um, yeah, I'm going to go uh, send an apology to, to Mira right, right now. <laughs> so you guys, it sounds like you did all, did you do all of the boards in the States and then send everything over? Or did Mira do some of the boards too? So Mira did a lot of the boards. Um, we, I think... So Studio Mira, they wanted to be more involved in like the, the pre-production. But the thing is, like, they they kind of had to learn to board. So storyboarding, it's a lot of work, and it's not easy, and it's not something that just anyone can, like, pick up in a couple of days. It, it takes a lot of, like, understanding and learning and, and experience to really become great at it. And so what we found was there were two guys who picked it up and excelled and were amazing. And then there were a lot of other artists who, like, they'd be kind of hit and miss and you know what to expect. Um, like when they were getting their section and you, you knew like if they were cast right, if they were given like the right section to do that you would get something good back. But Mir wouldn't let us pick. <laughs> like, they're just like, they're like, no, everyone needs to like get experience doing everything. And we'd be like, yeah, but when you, <laughs> when you put the, the amazing like comedy girl on like the crazy dramatic action, like it doesn't, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. She, she's not, that's not in her wheelhouse. And then that comes back and then we have to kind of redo it because it, it doesn't work. So we ended up having like a lot of work on our shoulders to to revise and get them notes. And because, because of the language barrier, like one thing that we learned really quickly up front was um, when stuff gets translated and sent to Mir, they take it very literally. So if you write a script, and it has like some kind of fancy wording that's got like a beautiful metaphor and you send it to me or they're going to take that shit real literally. <laughs> so it's like, like I'm, I can't remember a specific um, occasion, but like if you were to write something like a girl's running and it's like, oh, her shoes like burn up the pavement. Like, and that's your way of explaining it. You would get a literal storyboard of like, shoes and like fire and like pavement on fire and like and you'd be like what happened <laughs> you read the script and be like 
Oh, oh so we ended up starting to do this, like, I do basically a script pass after we get the script, we get it finalized. And then like, we do kind of like a note pass where we would go through, we'd almost like have like the script and then like a blank page next to it that in Photoshop we'd go and we'd like make any notes we needed to make or any like reference drawings we wanted to send to them. And like, I would occasionally cross out the metaphor and just write in exactly what needs to happen. <laughs> just like to make it as clear as possible. But, um, you know, now, yeah, now I'm very literal with all my scripts when I'm just like, uh, Everybody thinks you don't understand metaphors now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just, what, is, what is this? It says she's a cat. It's like, no, she's like a cat. It's like, it says she's a cat. Is she a cat? Don't write it in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, wow. So when you sat down and you like, you, you pitched out Voltron, that was, you, you said that was something that you had a, uh, like a real emotional attachment to when, when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how much of that made it, into the pitch and into the show, how much of your love of Robotech made it into the show? <laughs> I would say a large amount of our love of Robotech made it in like, I don't know what season it's called on, on Netflix. I know for us, it was season three. It was basically the last 20, 26 episodes of Ultron. Mm -hmm. or, I guess, or no, maybe the last, oh, I can't even remember. Whatever like the Atlas and, and all like that basically stuff. once they hit Earth, mm -hmm. it's all it's all Robotech. It's all Macross. It's oh, all yeah. like the Atlas is just the SDF one. Like we were trying to make it so like the the like MFE pilots could have like transforming jets, but we didn't have the CG assets. So they they just have cool jets. They don't transform. <laughs> like they're close. <laughs> um but yeah, like we knew we were never gonna get our hands on Robotech. Like I just, I think that's kind of, I, it would be amazing if we could, but I don't know if that's like in the realm of reality. And so we ended up just kind of starting with Voltron, but ultimately making kind of a love story to every kind of anime mecha thing that we'd ever loved. <laughs> like it all just kind of makes its way in. Like even a little bit of Gurren Logan like made its way in there. Um, but, you know, that's, you just kind of use the things that inspire you and the things you love to we also had 78 episodes, so like, I don't know if I could have mined Voltron for 78 <laughs> you, You've talked about some of the uh, anime influences that you have. What are some of your other influences? Are there live action directors or photographers or commercial artists? Or w what else do you draw from in your, your visual uh, toolbox? I am a basic bitch. And so, <laughs> like... I feel bad because I'm the person who like doesn't ever know like the names of the important people that made things. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, but I also don't expect anyone to ever know my name. It's like I when I make a show, I'm not like, you better know who I am. Like I don't care if like you have no idea that I worked on it, that's fine. Because like my my favorite movie of all time is A Little Mermaid, and I honestly don't know if I could tell you who directed it right now. I should know, <laughs> but I don't actually know. Um so, so there's that. Disney is a huge influence on me. Like my my younger years, Disney, like I was just a freaking crazy fanatic. Anything that Disney put out, like I would consume. Mostly the princesses. Like I was heavy into the Disney princesses, but pretty much anything, anything Disney, I loved. And I probably watched until the VHS fell apart in our 
you really came of age during that sort of Disney renaissance of the late the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and all that stuff that was coming out in the late 80s, early 90s. Yes, absolutely. And that that was pretty much like what made me want to work in animation. Where mm-hmm. it was like Little Mermaid was like huge. I guess it wasn't really like I think I was kind of on that track regardless. But the Little Mermaid really like made me like sit up and take notice. Because I like the second I saw Ariel, like I was in love. I was like, she's amazing. <laughs> like I just loved that character. And then um, Beauty and the Beast was an incredible experience. And then Aladdin was like the coolest kind of like most action adventure version of of like a Disney movie. And then Jasmine was cool in it too. So I was like, I got like both. I got a Disney princess and like a cool action movie. And so, yeah, like those were kind of like my golden triangle of like the Disney movies. Um, but yes, like that was kind of my biggest, my biggest influence early on um, because we didn't have the internet. Like I didn't have a lot of ability to kind of go seek things out. So I didn't know like like a lot of artists outside of like the occasional art books that I could purchase. Um, and like, I had a weird relationship with like comic book stores just cause like I was, I was a girl and like anytime I'd go into a comic book store, I'd get like some weird looks and it would either be like, you're a girl, you shouldn't be here or you're a girl and you're here. And like, I, I just always felt very uncomfortable in comic book stores. So like I wanted to read comics, but I could never like get myself to go into the store to buy them. So like, so it was like, I would admire them from a distance. But, but, uh, do, you, do you think it's changed? It, it seems like from my perspective, it's changed and women are a much larger part of fandom, a Absolutely. much larger part of, of buying and creating comics so that it's, it's maybe not 50-50, but there are a lot more women involved uh, from your perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think in animation, it's still like when I came in, it was a very male dominated industry. Like I honestly had no idea. Like as a kid growing up, no one ever told me like, is a male-dominated industry. <laughs> like I, nobody ever dissuaded me. I was just like, cartoons, I want to draw them. I'm gonna do it. And then like I got into it. And I was like, oh, okay, there's not a lot of other girls here. Well, like I'll just make do. Um, but I think it's changed a lot in the time that I've been in the industry. And yeah, you're right. It's still it's still nowhere near 50-50. And women in leadership positions are still pretty rare. Um, but I don't know, I always say this, but then I always feel really stupid for saying it. <laughs> like, I think it's a matter of time. I hope it's a matter of time because the women are coming in and it's just a matter of them gaining that experience and getting to the place where they can, they have enough experience under their belt that they can take on those leadership positions. And, you know, it's well, just kind of everyone being aware and, and making sure that you know we're all participating in bringing them up and, and promoting them and getting them to those places. But there's a lot, a lot of women, a lot more women coming into the industry now than when I when I started. You could just point to someone like, like a Margaret Lesh who almost single-handedly built the Fox Kids Network, which was a huge part of that late 80s, early 90s television renaissance. Mm-hmm. And she was the driving force, and Karen Barnes, her, her second, her vice president, very you know, very instrumental in, in this. And it's it's a shame that there's not more uh, women that have risen to, to those levels. But um, 
So how how did you like make your way in? I mean, is, and you know, was your was your thought okay? I want to like I want to draw stuff. I want to go work for Disney. I want to do that. Like, but but like, but what was your path? Like, how did you how did you get yeah. there? So so you're correct. Like my first thing was like I my goal was like I wanted to be a 2D animator for Disney. Um, I went to college at Loyola Marymount University, which. Like, like I, I went, like I looked at CalArts and like, again, I was such a basic bitch and like the people at CalArts were so artsy. I was like, oh, it's too much. They're too good. I can't be here. Like I just immediately felt like overwhelmed. And then my parents were also like kind enough to pay for my college education. So they were like, we'd rather you go to the, the college that has like other options too. In case you're not super committed to this animation thing. And I was like, well, you don't know me as well as you think you do because I am committed. And so, but I went to Loyal Marymount and um, I took a storyboard class that was taught by Jay Oliva. And he works in the industry and like he was one of the only professors we had that actually like worked in the industry and knew what it was like and knew what the studios were looking for. So that class that he taught was like invaluable um, to me, like learning the ways of what, how, how can I work in a studio? Um, and also like during the time that I was there, two things happened. One was Disney started shutting down all 2D animation and they were just going to make all CG and they made that like dinosaur movie that was like, mm. but like, but you could tell like they were really like CG is it, CG is the way, everybody in America loves CG, 2D is old and then they just like shut it down like, like it was yesterday's news. Um, but the other thing that happened was I realized I'm not that great at animating because I can't draw anything on model or keep volumes consistent to save my life. Uh, but I really did enjoy storyboarding because it was everything that I loved about animation without all the in-betweens. Like, it was just like, <laughs> I can basically choose the shots and still kind of do a lot of the key posing, the stuff that's going to explain what the character needs to do. I just don't have to have the pressure of making the final beautiful thing that has to be on screen. Um, so that was kind of where I fell in love with storyboarding. And Jay Oliva, my teacher, also was hugely helpful in giving me my first job on He-Man, <laughs> like the 2002 He-Man, because he was, I want to say like supervising director or whatever his um, title was. Uh, and so that was my first job. I had drawn pretty much nothing but like ladies and Disney princesses up to that point. So now I had to draw a bunch of like super early muscle men. And like, it was like, I, I had like basically made myself a little reference binder. I had that like, how to draw comics the Marvel way where they show you like superhero proportions. I was like, I need this, I have to learn from this. Um, and, uh, and for a good, like two or three storyboards, all of my muscle men had very ladyish legs because I hadn't quite mastered like- It's hip leg I, day. <laughs> how, like the, the hip area of a boy works. Like, I was just like, I know lady hips, but I'm not sure about these drawing these guy Ram. hips. That Ram don't. man, I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, like, I remember, like, I had this one, like, triclops drawing where it's like, looks like a dude up top. And then, like, down here, it's just like, lady leg. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. 
So I had to, I had to figure, figure that out. Like what do dude legs look like? Cause they're not the same. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that was my first job. And I was, I was fortunate cause I went straight into storyboarding. Um, a lot of people, you know, become a revisionist first. Like that's kind of the entry level position where you like learn your way up. And I think, Jay just needed someone so quickly. And like, I, I had just happened to kind of reach out to him. Um, I graduated and I was putting my little portfolio together and wanted him to just look at it. I was like, hey, can you look at it and tell me like what I need to fix so that I can like start looking for a job. And, um, and so I had like, I'd called him and he's like, we'd set up like a day that I was going to come like and have lunch and show my stuff before we even got there. Like, I think the next day he just called me back. Um, the day after basically we made plans, he called me and he's like, Hey, I, I might have a position for you. Do me a favor. Just basically board me out a quick action scene, just whatever you want. Like basically this was my, his version of like me doing a, a bit of a test, but just like whatever kind of popped into my head. So I spent that weekend just boarding this little action scene that like, I look at it now and it's, it's the worst thing ever, but he was very kind. <laughs> he gave me a job like based on it. Um, and I went straight into storyboarding and like, and I learned a ton on that first, um, first job. Just like we were in kind of this, we call it kind of like the dungeon because it was like the basement of Mike Young Productions, like the building that they were in. And like, we didn't have offices. We were all just kind of like a bunch of desks in this kind of basement underground room. And we were all just kind of working. And so like, that was my first experience, like working in a professional environment with like other people in animation. And there was a bunch of other guys who, you know, they were very experienced and, you know, they were all so cool and humble and nice and supportive and helpful. And like, there was nothing, there was nothing but goodwill like in that room. And it was just like, it was one of like, as like, mixed feelings as I have about the show because of the quality of my work. <laughs> like it was still one of like the most, I don't know, fun and, and happy experiences I have because like, A, I was on cloud nine because I was finally working in animation, which was everything I'd ever wanted. And B, all of the people that I was working with were such amazing, like wonderful, sweet, kind people. So it was great. And like, I was able to do that for a year, year and a half. Um, and then like, I had a roommate, she was working as an intern or not an intern. I think she moved into production, like a PA at Warner Brothers. And she had heard that Justice League was staffing up. And so Human was winding down. She was like, hey, do you want me to get you a test for Justice League? And I was like, F yeah. Cause like Bruce Tim was a legend, you know, the Batman, the animated series and like the Superman, the animated series. And, um, Adventures of Batman and Robin, like everything that, that had been done. And then the first Justice League had come out. And so this was um, the Justice League Unlimited, which was basically kind of the reboot where they were like, we're going to bring in more heroes and we're going to make the episodes more like more of an episodic, um, less of like a two-parters, three-parter, big, crazy stories. And so, so they were restaffing up for that. I did the test. I got a job in that and the guy who hired me there was Joaquin. <laughs> Joaquin Santos. He was my director, gave me my basically second job on Justice League. And so like, it was a completely different experience because now I was in like a whole nother league 
of, of story artists. And like, I was so unbelievably intimidated and just like scared shitless. Like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Everyone's so good. Like I was scared to death. And like, and again, like everyone was so nice and they, and they would be so kind and be like, oh no, you're, you're doing really good, Lauren. Like they, everyone else had more confidence in me than I had in myself. Like I was so just like, I'm horrible. I don't belong here. They're going to fire me. But no, they liked what I did. And like the craziest thing was Bruce liked what I did, which like, you know, he was kind of like this hero idol that I wouldn't even make eye contact with because I was so like intimidated and amazed by him. But like, he liked my stuff. And I was like, shit, this is like, this is not real. Like, how is this happening in my life? Um, so I want to, I can't even remember, like at some point, like Legion of Superheroes happened. I did like a season of that. And then I think Superman Doomsday may have been just after that. And that was when Bruce like personally asked me to like to direct on that, like for him. Um, and this was like when those kind of straight to DVD things, they would run them very much like a TV pipeline where it's like, it's a hundred and something minutes or no, not a hundred. It's like 70 minutes. <laughs> so it's essentially like three episodes. So they treat it like three episodes. So they'd have an, three episodic directors, one on each. And so I was directing like act one and, um, and I did that and like, and that was fun. And so around that time was when I get a call from Joaquin. He had like left and gone to Avatar, The Last Airbender. And so, and he needed a new board artist because someone had rolled off or someone wasn't working out. Um, and so he was like, he'd asked me and a number of other people to kind of like take a test um, and a lot of the funny thing is like a lot of the other guys I was working with, you're like, I'm not going to test. Why do I need to test? And like, but I, like, I had no ego. I was like, yeah, I'll take a test. Just give it to me. <laughs> so, like I, I did the test and, and I got the job based off that. And so then I got to work on Avatar The Last Airbender. I literally worked on it for like, I want to say eight episodes, maybe like at the very end. Like, but I still get to say I worked on it. So right. like, I get to like have that little feather in my cap, even though I, like, I did so little to actually add to that show. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that was a great experience because I got to meet Mike and Brian, the co-creators of Avatar The Last Airbender, and just meet a lot of other amazing, talented people on that production. Um, around then, like, then uh, I've got Bruce calls me up and it's like, hey, we're going to do another DVD. At that point, it was going to be the Teen Titans, the Judas contract. Um, they were going to make a straight-to-DVD thing about that. That fell through. And then they're like, oh, we're going to do Wonder Woman. Uh, and, like, I had no clue, like, what a unique kind of opportunity that was. I was just like, yeah, I'll do it. This is amazing. And it's a lady, which which was cool because I'd drawn a lot of buff guys in my career <laughs> at this point. And draw um, those hips. Yeah, <laughs> <mastering>. <laughs> those hips never got any better. But um, then I, so I went and I did Wonder Woman, and that was really exciting. Like that was kind of my first chance to really run something on my own. But like, of course, under Bruce's supervision, he was like, like Bruce. We're a lot alike in a ways, in that like neither of us is like a super nurturing, like teacher type of person. He's just someone who leads by example, and I just kind of learn from watching, and and that's essentially what he was doing. He would just kind of do his job, and I would just kind of watch and absorb, and that was like 
what our relationship was. And that's what he liked because I don't think he likes people who are like, want too much of his attention. <laughs> so, like, like I had someone say, he's like, someone, someone says like, Bruce likes you because you don't want him to like you. Like it was something, something along those lines of like, or like you don't, like I didn't like, yeah, beg for like more of his time or like want to want to be his best friend or hang out on weekends. I just kind of left him alone because that's kind of the person that I am. Like I keep to myself, he keeps to himself and together we can work and it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so, yeah, we, like I was at Warner brothers for a, for a good long chunk of time, just doing a lot of the DC um, properties. Uh, I, I grew just a little tired, a little restless of it just because we'd done so many. I really wanted to do something with a female character again. But (laughs) when Wonder Woman came out, like it didn't perform well for them. Um, And of course, you know, it came out literally at like the bottom of the 2009 recession. Right. Was not the time that anyone was like spending their non-existent disposable income on like a straight to DVD feature. Um, But of course it was blamed on the fact that she was a woman. Like it didn't perform because it's a female character and therefore at Warner Brothers, female characters were kind of off the table. And and so despite all of my like begging and pleading, it was just like, oh yeah, you can do a Batgirl if Batman's the main character. And so I was like, eh, that, that kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to make a Batman movie. I'm trying to make Batgirl. Um, so ultimately when I had lunch with Joaquin and Mike and Brian again, and they said, hey, we're doing a second season of Core and we want to expand the crew. Do you want to be a part of it? And I was like, yes. Like, it's a female lead. Like, I was already jealous enough that, like, they were doing it and I wasn't a part of it, like, in the first (laughs) season. So when the second season came around, I was like, yes, let me on. Let me on that train. I want to work on, like, something with a female in it. And so that was an amazing experience. I think we all knew while we were working on it, just what a unique experience it was because A, it had a female lead, which they had run into their own like issues even with that. Like when Brian had recently like told me we were we were talking and he was like, oh yeah, uh, when we were pitching Cora and we were pitching it was a woman, they specifically said like, but that Wonder Woman movie didn't do well. It was like, oh, <laughs> oh no, like, like the movie I made didn't sell well and now it's someone's throwing that in their face and they're like but luckily like they're the creators they held a little more weight and so they basically were like it's a girl or we walk and therefore Cora was a woman Um, and by the way that show like I didn't realize this but Cora had higher numbers higher weekly numbers than Game of Thrones and the uh, yeah, problem with it was it was the wrong. Well, it was as far as Nickelodeon was concerned, it was the wrong audience because it was it was older dudes like in their thirties <laughs> watching the show rather than the kids that they thought should be watching Nickelodeon. Yeah, and it's it was crushing Game of Thrones, <laughs> which is insane if you think. Yeah, about it. I I always joke that like Nickelodeon has a love hate relationship with like the Avatar um, property because like. They they love it because it brings in like so much prestige because it's such like an amazing thing and like people really respect it and love it and then so they get they get kind of like really excited about it and then they they make it and they put it out and they realize like oh 
this doesn't get us the ad revenue that SpongeBob does. <laughs> like, <laughs> like SpongeBob gets us more ad revenue and then they start to kind of hate it. And then they start like ultimately like, you know, it ends and they're just like, yeah, no, we'll never do that again. And then some time passes and they get nostalgic for like, oh, remember when like we had that amazing feather in our cap because people thought like Avatar was so amazing. And then they want to do another one. And so then like, you know, Core comes along the green light that and they're doing it and they're like, oh, this is amazing. This is so beautiful. So wonderful. And then they realize, oh, we can't get the ad revenue. Let that SpongeBob get us. And then like, it goes downhill again. And it's like, if they just, if they could just kind of like understand and identify like the audience that accompanies that show and that mm -hmm. property, like they could monetize it and they could turn it to their advantage. I don't know. I think it, it's difficult sometimes with just any animation studio getting them to break the mold of what they're used to, which is like, mm -hmm. they, they know they're tried and true. Um, this is the boys toys formula. This is like the kids six to nine, 10, 10 to 12. Like they have all of their categories and they know kind of their formulas that go with that. And the second you give them something that doesn't fit into that, they just don't even know what to do with it. Right. So it's like they have no idea and it's almost doesn't matter if it's if it's good or not and that's like not being critical of them it's just they have their you know they have their reasons to say yes and their you know reasons to think that something is is working or not working that has almost nothing to do with with quality and it's like you said it's like it doesn't matter if, if Cora is pulling down monster numbers if you know you can't get the right advertisers to pay the right amount of money to it, it, they don't care about the, yeah. the numbers that you're getting I mean, it's a business, like at the end of the day, it's a business that's based on art. But unfortunately, the like as much as I wish the art would kind of trump the business, it doesn't like the business oftentimes ends up trumping the art. So was it more liberating to work when you were um, when you were on Voltron? Was it more liberating to work in a scenario where it was Netflix, where did, was that pressure? Was there a different pressure in terms of the the numbers for you or what, did that go away? How did that? How did that affect actually, you? Like, it was a, different. Like, that's all I can really say. It's like, it was a different experience. Um, DreamWorks is a different company from Nickelodeon. So Nickelodeon, like, Nickelodeon was not, like, controlling when it came to core. In fact, like, they really let the creators do a lot of what they wanted to do. They just, they simply suffered from not really knowing what to do with it. And then, like, there was a little bit of like mishandling it, I think towards the end where it transitioned from network to online, but like people didn't know and people were missing it. And like, had it just been handled appropriately, it could have been perfect. Like could have, Cora could have been kind of like Nickelodeon's first like online show and they could have made a thing about it. But uh, DreamWorks was just a different experience. And a lot of it was like, we knew what we were going into when we went to Voltron because we knew Cora was a very unique experience that had nothing to do with a toy tie-in or any CP. It was pretty much Nickelodeon just saying like, we're going to make this show. We're going to let the creators make this show. It's it's going to be their vision. It's not going to be like a huge CP moneymaker for us. And we're committed to that. Um, and they let it happen. Voltron was supposed to be a CP moneymaker. And we knew going into it that that was what we were going into. And we knew we were going like kind of back to the tried and true animation formula and that we were going to have to work within that box to make something that we still felt was like up to like the quality standards of the stories that we wanted to make. 
we knew we didn't have the freedom that sometimes like creators can be given and Nickelodeon because we weren't the creators of Voltron. Voltron was an existing IP that DreamWorks had acquired. And now we, you know, even though Tim and the writing team and, and Joaquin and myself all like worked together to build like a very massive world that didn't necessarily exist like in this fully formed version before, we're still technically like not at all the creators. So, right. so we don't really have like a lot of say in, in that respect. Like we can't be like, it's this way or we walk. Cause they'll be like, yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll get the next person to make the show. <laughs> so it's really just like, how much do you want to make the show? And you, you kind of pick your battles. And, and so we, we knew like there were things that the studio was going to want from us that we were going to really like have to give them. And that was fine because that's ultimately it's the studio system that we'd worked in up until that point. Cora was really the one outlier and, and then Cora was over. <laughs> and so like, we really didn't expect to ever have a, like an experience like that again. Um, and the crazy thing was like streaming really opened up this desire and want for serialized content, which was hu a huge game changer for myself and other people who very much love and watch anime and love serialized storytelling. Um, so before that, one one of the reasons why Nickelodeon has that love-hate relationship with Avatar and Korra is because they are serialized stories, but serialized stories do not rerun well um, on network television and with an ad revenue. Again, like if it's not rerunning well, no one's paying for the commercials. So streamers absolutely want it because it keeps you watching. It keeps you in your seat. You want to like hang on for the next episode and you want to, you want to see more. So suddenly we had like this ability and people were encouraging it, like tell a, a story. And I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then on top of it, we go to Voltron. They're like, you have like 78 episodes. This is the order, 78 episodes. And we're like, oh my God, we can tell a story and we can tell a huge long story. And we know how exactly how much time we're getting to tell it so we can make sure it has a beginning and a middle and an end and we can end it like like definitively it's not like we don't know if we're getting another season so you kind of cliffhanger but you don't know if you get to pay it off because you might get canceled like there was none of that it was just like this is it this is your order this is the show this is your budget do what you will with it so it was really awesome in that way um the the difficult thing was the, our budget like was not what we needed like, to make the show without people kind of killing themselves to get it done, which is never like a good scenario in any situation, but it's a horrible scenario when you're going to do it for 78 episodes straight. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we lost like a couple directors, Eugene, like the poor guy, he hung in for the whole ride. And then, you know, and they, then he died. Wait, no. <laughs> yeah, and then he yeah. took a nice break, and now and now you guys have the benefit of having him and all of his talent. But like, I can't. I imagine he was probably like a ghostly husk for a little while. After, <laughs> after is a, was a badass. Um, you know, and it's funny you're talking about all the things you have to do to communicate with the animators. I mean, there were so many things that we that we did. Um, but but he would go through every script and he would write all these annotations for Korea and he would draw thumbnails to illustrate that if like if his annotations weren't enough. 
You know, yeah. he would reboard, he would do all of these things. And it was just, he was constantly in motion. Or, you know, you're, I'm sitting and I'm going through an animatic and I'm like, man, it's like, this kind of needs a thing here. I just need like two shots where it's whatever and just call Eugene. And somehow miraculously, you know, an hour later, you know, there's like, there, well, here's like about three seconds, you know, <laughs> to just drop into that animatic. And, you're, and I'm just, how do you do that? Yeah. Honestly, I can, now that I think about it, I'm just asking you, how do you do that, right? Like, because <laughs> I mean, you start drawing Disney princesses and then you figure out that like dudes have different hips. And then suddenly you realize that like the animation thing, the animation itself isn't you, but you can draw boards. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole storytelling skill, man. Like, like, how did you like? What was your evolution in that? Like, and 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 how did you know that you got to a point where it's yeah, this is good and this works? You don't. I would say there's a good like four to five years in the beginning of my career where I had no clue. Like, I didn't know. If, like, I was like, am I good? Is this good? Like, I I would read scripts and I and like. I remember just reading like scripts early on and like a friend of mine was like, oh, is the script any good? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I didn't know like the difference between a good script or a bad script. Like it was just like, it was a story and I was reading it and I was happy. Um, I would see storyboards. Like sometimes, you know, I'd be given portfolios. Like if I had to, like one of my first directing gigs and like I had to kind of choose board artists and like here's a portfolio and I would look at them and it's like, I didn't, always know like oh, how do I tell if this is a good board or a bad board because I just didn't have like the experience under my my belt yet but it's just something that you gain with time it's an an experience um and I honestly don't even know if I could really like truly explain it <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I think you just have to have done it long enough to kind of be able to see like the pitfalls or like the fallbacks of like kind of lazy or generic boarding and then the stuff that's like truly inspired and unique and like and pushing the boundaries um and yeah you just you have to kind of have worked with it or around it or done it long enough to know like what can be done so when you see something that's truly original like you can recognize it um but yeah, it's it's tricky, <laughs> like, and it's hard because it's like it's it's the reason why like finding truly truly good board artists is is such a hard thing to do because it's not something that can just you can teach it, but teaching it it's not like you know two plus two equals four, and once you know it, you know it. It's like I can teach the exact same class to like five different people, and I'll get five completely different like skill sets and talent levels and so some of it like there are people who are very much like students of filmmaking and those are the people who could tell you exactly who their live action like influences are and this that and the other thing and they're probably the people who will teach classes and probably be like the best teachers and then there's me and like I, I feel like Joaquin is kind of in my camp a little bit where we're more of like the gut feeling. Like, it's like my gut tells me that this is right. Or like, I want to see this shot. I feel like this shot is necessary. Like this shot makes me feel something. So it's just like, there's like, it's like the science and then just like the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
you're not going, what would Hitchcock do in this scene? Or, you know? I, yeah, I know. I'm, like, I'm sure, like, I probably would be way better at my job if I, like, did more of that. <laughs> like, I just, I tend to just kind of, like, feel things out. So the advanced math question on that is this. So you're directing an episode, right? Or you are directing a part of um, one of the DC, you know, direct video movies. You're, you know, it's, it's whatever you're doing when you're, you're directing in this business, you have a team of board artists, you, you have your sections, you divide up your sections, you send it out to the artists, you know, you have a couple of badasses, you have a couple of people who Mm -hmm. come in and, and they're relatively new, um, or maybe you don't know exactly what you're going to get out of them. Um, they send in their boards. Like, how much instruction do you give them ahead of time to keep them consistent with the storytelling? Like, what happens when you have, say you're lucky enough to have like two badasses, like on one episode coming back and sending you these amazing boards that feel like they're in totally different shows. Like, mm-hmm. so how do you how do you manage that process to, to keep everybody almost literally on the same page when you have these very different, perhaps very different visions of these different scenes when you initially set out to, to start the episode? Right. Well, you usually like, when you've got a show, like you usually have like some sort of, you want to have kind of like a reference point for for the artist before they start. So you're not getting like this person's boarding Teen Titans Go and this person's boarding Dota. Like, like mm-hmm. you can't, they can't live in the same universe. So A, you usually pick your board artists according to their strengths and according to like whether or not they're appropriate for the show. Because there are people who really excel at like amazing like comedy. And there are people who excel much more at um like with Cora, we were going for like a much more kind of live action camera feel mm-hmm. where it, it wasn't like as pushed of like some of the kind of the action adventure shots. It was more like we want this camera to feel like like it's in a set. Um, and so uh, you just kind of have to make sure you're choosing the right people and you're making sure that they know like what the look of the show is that you're going for uh, so that ultimately you have as little kind of problems come up as can be. Now, there's always going to be growing pains, especially like first time out. Like you're if you're starting a show and you've got your first episode out of the gate, it's probably going to be the most like revisions. Like, I don't want to say the most. Like there, there might be like some disaster episode down the line. But you know, like the, you're going to be making a lot of revisions up front. And the idea being like, every episode that happens after like people people are learning and they're getting more on the same page and that's why like as we were kind of saying you know by the time you get to the end of your order like it's like the second to last episode you're like man we are firing on all cylinders everyone gets it we all know what show we're making and then it's over and then everyone goes to different shows and you're like ah ah and then you gotta start all over again on another show and you gotta get everyone on the same page so it's just it's the process, sadly. <laughs> You're always going to be tired. I don't know anyone who works in animation that's not tired. <laughs> God. <laughs> <sighs> well, I hate to say it, but I, I think we're getting the high sign from the bartender that it's that uh, that it's closing time. It's I last call. But I did have one last question for you. What kind of things are you watching now in animation that inspire you? Is there anything uh, uh, that you're into these days? Oh, I'm trying to think of like the most recent thing I watched. Like I've been watching a lot more live action stuff now. Um, 
you can say what kind of live action stuff. <laughs> I, I will. I am a big Game of Thrones fan. I just recently like watched the His Dark Materials on the HBO Now, mm-hmm. which I thought was like it had some good stuff in it. Um, but uh, gosh, I'm so I'm so bad at remembering things. <laughs> Do I remember? Like, I will say like a, a while back, I watched like all of. Bob's Burgers, and I thought that that show was just darling, like so, like sweet, and just you feel good after watching it. And it's such like a different show from anything like I've ever worked on. And I could never make that show. If they put that show in my lap, I would destroy it. It would be a horrible mess. <laughs> but like that's why I appreciate it. It's like, oh, this is a skill set that I don't have, but like I really appreciate this show. And it's like it's so sweet, and like I don't know. Just heartwarming. <laughs> I also oh, watched Morty. Oh, with, oh my god! Right? Oh, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. So good. It's just a ridiculous show. <laughs> Tell me that Pickle Rick, like the scene where he kicks the crap out of the rats, is not one of the best animated action scenes it's of the really last twenty impressive. years. It's very impressive animation for like, like such a simplified show. Like, right. it's it's funny because like I think I can just come from that. I'm used to seeing like stylized characters get very stylized animation. And so when you have something that's like as fluid and kind of crazy as that, it's like, oh my God, we've come such a long way. <laughs> like, we can do all of this crazy animation and it's not like kind of the Hanna-Barbera where everything has to be like really flat because we're working with cells. It's like, ah, oh, we've got these computers and we can do everything now. <laughs> right, we can, we can turn around. We can do like a Michael Bay like camera spin around the headshot. Yeah, and that doing that in 2D is just like a nightmare. So the fact that they found ways to like be able to do that and just the fact that we found ways to make CG look like 2D, oh, like Spider-Verse is probably one of the most inspiring oh. things that I've watched like of recent times. So uh so that's I'd say like pretty high up there. Yeah. <laughs> but just the kind of how far they went with the visuals to really making make it a striking to look at, but beyond that, just a, an incredible story to go with it. So it's not just like the visual fluff of cool art. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the whole package. Well, those are some great things to watch. If you haven't watched any of those, do yourself a favor and watch them because they're they're incredible. Spider Verse was tremendous. Well, gosh, thank you, Lauren Montgomery, for spending a lot of time with us today on the podcast. It was great. We could have gone for another <laughs> ep- whole entire episode. It was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. So, awesome. And if you ever want me back for another episode, I'm happy to join. Totally have you back for another episode if you are so foolish as you wish it. <laughs> a return to the bar room for a, <laughs> no another knew, round. I can tell you. <laughs> Well, thank you, Lauren. So uh, this has been another episode of Cartoon Barroom. Our sound engineers are Bill Ritter and Mark Rivera. Our producer is Natalie Miscali. Our co-producers are Peter Holmstrom and Zach Raggetts. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our sister shows, The 430 Movie, in which a group of industry professionals curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies, Inglorious Trexperts, the ultimate Star Trek podcast, and The Best Movies Never Made, about films that never saw the light of a projector bulb. You can watch all these podcasts and much more on the free Electric Now video streaming app. Download it today at your favorite app store. 
You can also follow this show and all our other shows on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So until next time, that's, that's all, all, folks. folks. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.